0: Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. Today, we're going to be talking about Recovery Dundee. Recovery Dundee is a recovery group uh, in Dundee, Scotland, and today we're going to have a guest. And the guest is Sharon Webster, and she's going to be talking to us about the program over there. And, you know, I um, have developed a relationship with Sharon here over the past few weeks. Uh, After meeting, I had reached out to Recovery Dundee uh, through their Facebook site, and Sharon responded back to me. We've had a relationship ever since then. And my interest in Scotland actually began a couple of years ago when I was in Brussels, Belgium on business. And I was talking to some Scottish police officers and we got into a discussion about uh, addiction after a night of not just these guys, but all the people we were with trying to get me to drink and me refusing to drink while we were over there. And they were kind of fascinated by, you know, why, why is it that I wouldn't drink at all? And I think that they were trying to figure it out. They were, you know, because I know a lot of times Europeans think that we Americans have, you know, are just very prudish about drinking and 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 just very, you know, maybe it's for religious, 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 uh, religious reasons or other reasons. But um, I ended up explaining to them, no, that uh, I can't sa- safely drink alcohol at all, and kind of explained what was going on with me. And uh, and that turned into a really big discussion about addiction and the, the problems that addiction creates. And um, they gave me the European perspective, particularly the Scottish perspective, uh, regarding the, the issues that they face over there and uh, talk about the different philosophies and how addiction is handled in Europe as opposed to the United States. And it was a really good conversation. And But what it did was it caused me to go back and take a look at Europe, because I I will say that one of my faults, and I think the faults of a lot of Americans, is that we oftentimes think that the problems that we have are unique to where we are, and we only pay attention to where we are. And I think that a lot of countries do that, but uh, that discussion forced me to kind of get out of my world and get out into the rest of the world and, and look at what the problems are there, and I started doing some research on Scotland, and... Saw the, you know, what issues are happening. I know heroin is a big issue. Pills are a big issue. Of course, uh, all over Europe is is a real drinking culture. And uh, after I met Sharon and we had some discussions about it, really, really just kind of sucked me in and and really got me uh, wanting to learn more and more and wanting to help in any way I could with that. And so I asked Sharon to come on the the show today, and she is here. And uh, Sharon's going to share with us our story. This may be a a several-part episode here, but Sharon's going to talk about who she is and why she does what she does and the the type of work that she does now. So with that, Sharon, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Mike. It's uh, a pleasure to be on here and speak to you. uh, I'm a bit nervous because I've never done a podcast like this before, but um, I'm happy to share um, the things we're doing over here and the problems that we face and the relationships we have with alcohol and drugs and how that affects the wider community. Yeah. Yeah, that's
0: fantastic. That's fantastic. Now, I hope you can understand my accent. Can you understand my accent?
1: Definitely. My stepmother's from New York, so I've got a good handle on it. Yes. Yeah, so. You
0: know, I've, I've, I'm curious, right? Just before we get started mm-hmm. here. Um, obviously, you're from Scotland. You have an accent. Do Scottish people mm-hmm. think that we have an accent?
1: Definitely, yeah. I think um, listening to the Scottish accent on any television media or anything is very strange. Uh, It sounds quite terrible. The American accent always sounds pretty good, like I think, yeah. So, um, I don't know, in my view, I I think... uh, I understand the accent quite well. I think probably you'll have a, a great deal of difficulty understanding some of the words that I say. <laughs> no,
0: and, that, and actually, I have to say the opposite is for, true. For me, I actually hear the Scottish accent, and I think it sounds really cool. I really, I really like All it. Right, in fact, okay. I find every time I talk to you, um, I in my mind, uh, in my mind, I start thinking in a Sh- Scottish accent. <laughs> it takes a couple of days oh, that, for that that's to go
1: cool. away. I <laughs> That's good. I like so it.
0: Sharon, I tell that. us a little bit about yourself. What what brings you here? How how did we how did we get here to this point?
1: So I mean, like you said, you reached out to us in the Facebook page, yeah. but um, getting to the point where I am in my life right now, um, obviously, like the very early stages of my life, I suffered a lot of trauma and a lot of displacement. I, w- I moved around the country a lot and. I um, eventually came back to Dundee, um, I grew in my teenage years, I grew up in London, so I was exposed to a kind of middle class background, my stepfather worked for BBC, so I was exposed to a lot of um, things that many people would never be um exposed as a, as a teenager and a child. When I moved back to Dundee, I moved from a middle-class living to living in quite severe poverty. And the whole city was like that. And I suppose that compounded the experience I'd had as a child. And it pushed me into using drugs, I think. So, yeah, I think um, my addiction lasted for about 10 years. I use heroin, obviously, on a daily basis, and... Um, First off, it was um to to get rid of the feelings I had, and then it was like having to drink water or breathe air. You you needed it to function, and when it got to that stage, I realised I had a big problem, and um. I reached out for help, and then quickly realised that uh, in my country specifically, the the treatment and the services that are on offer are probably three decades behind, probably America and a good part of the rest of Europe as well. So. Um, I I was a single mum at the time and trying to find support that was good and specific for me was impossible and my life moved forward so much whilst I was in treatment I had to take control of um, the treatment that I was on and I withdrew from methadone at home with four children and when I reached out for support for recovery back then and you're only talking now I would say I stopped using heroin about seven or eight years ago and then I came off methadone. Actually, four years would be on the 24th of August. Um, there was nothing except for the fellowship, um, 12 steps, and, and although that, that is great and I know many, many, many decades it's, it's helped a lot of lot of people get into recovery, it was impossible for me to access the meetings and things like that because of the time scale. That they were set and and where they were set and the distance we had to travel to to get to these so I seen a huge gap and I knew I wasn't unique so I spent a year volunteering with a, a charity called Ad Action they're a gateway service um across the UK so if you're suffering with any kind of addiction you would go to the service and they would funnel you into the National Health Service and you would then get uh, put for alcohol or drugs or whatever your addiction was and they would um, put you in contact with the treatment or services that you need so I volunteered with them for a year and sort of seen how they worked and what they had on offer and seen there was a huge gap in what they did and how they supported people so I used my experience from that and I connected with a, a charity called uh, the Scottish Recovery Consortium. They're very well known in Scotland and they're kind of at the forefront of a lot of recovery stuff that goes on here. Um, they were set up by government to then link in recovery communities that didn't exist back then. That was about 15 years ago. We we joined up with them. I worked with them for about nine months and got 2,000 people to our city to raise awareness, um, uh, make recovery visible and, and really show show people that it was possible to recover by bringing people from all over the UK to our city and and showing that... Because in Dundee, it's a very unique... Um, experience recovery for a lot, like there's not many people that are in recovery in Dundee and those that are kind of stay in the shadows because of the stigma attached yeah. to especially drug addiction uh, especially alcohol I think we've got a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol in Scotland, it's socially accepted and you, like you said when you had that experience with your colleagues when you were in Europe it's it's frowned upon if you don't drink alcohol, like you're like the, the, the person that's got that issue because you're not engaging with alcohol so um, once we once once we worked with the src we then started um gaining momentum and after the recovery walk the src went away and we still had a group and we 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 knew that people needed support Um, and we we've kind of shaped over the last three years um a kind of support that's more emotionally We're more emotionally available for people. We're more there at the times they need them. And when when it's needed, um, we can, with intervention, there's online support, we do like social events. And it's taken a a new direction over COVID because we've seen the effects of three generational of addicts and families, especially in the we call housing schemes. So we're and collective housing schemes, which are areas where, I don't know what you call it in America, social housing, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, public housing. Yeah. 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 So the, the, there's probably, I don't know, seven or eight housing schemes in Dundee, and then you've got people that have lived in poverty when um, the mills and, and places that were given employment to a lot of families closed down in the 80s. Alcohol became a big issue. Then and sort of the late 80s early 90s drugs then became a big issue and now you've got children who are related to uh, grandparents and mothers fathers uncles who are three generations in to being addicted and now they are using drugs and alcohol both at the same time so it's they they've got dual addictions from the ages I would say the youngest person we've supported is 13 and 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 that is the direction we're going in now and, and we've, we're starting to work with young people. I spoke at Westminster, I think, probably a year ago in May um, and gave evidence to the Scottish Affairs Committee because drug-related deaths um, are so high in our country. Dundee has actually been the highest for many years. I think Glasgow superseded us last year, but only by a, a tiny percentage. And I think in relation to how many people live in each city, we're probably all even on that. But the drug-related deaths have been a, a, a big point of contention for government and council, and they've um, driven quite hard on trying to resolve this in the last two years they're focusing on naloxone which is a drug reversal for overdose uh, harm reduction which is great and speaking to people with a lived experience to try and get a handle on what they could do but also at the same time using lived experience for uh, Whatever they're trying to shape, it's it's not being shaped by the people that understand the issues. It's being shaped by the the people that have got the funding and money to do that and yeah, then used right. for whatever yeah. they decide. Yeah, so um, we spoke and we told them that – they out of four people that gave evidence I was the only person that raised the issue about young people and to me if, you're, if you are wanting to stop a, a problem or an issue you go to the root of the problem and these children now and, and teenagers and young people so I'm talking from the age of say 13, 14 to 24 they are the next drug deaths or drug related deaths alcohol related deaths in the future and without intervention and early education this is just going to continue and, and the drug deaths will continue continue to rise so for us our direction now is to focus on the kids that are affected by that for me my partner committed suicide just as I was starting to try and get better and that affected my children on a whole other level obviously my addiction my addiction obviously affected them quite badly. I've got four kids. My oldest son's twenty two. My youngest is seven. He's had the best of me, which which you can see the big difference between my older children and him, are like immensely. So I can understand these issues fundamentally because I'm affected directly and can see the impact that a, a drug related death or a suicide can have. Like we also have the highest rate of male suicide in Scotland, so it's um. There's, there's a whole – the issues are very complex and hard to understand, but to me, fundamentally, to get to the root of the issues that we're trying to deal with, we can only do that if we are engaging with the young people and, and the people that the future of, of our city and country. And, yeah, it's um, – I don't know, it's uh, – it's a no-brainer for me and, and the fact that they, they still haven't got anything in place for, for these kids. They've suffered, like, trauma through addiction through parents and grandparents. They've suffered trauma through bereavement of uh, drug-related deaths. Then you've got the added pressure of peers and what's going on in the community as a whole. So, yeah, it's... um. I don't know if I've gone off gone off topic a bit there, but to understand the direction that we've moved from in the last four years, we focused on the people that were uh, trying to get into recovery, the people that are getting better. We've got a big group of people now who are in recovery, people that are back to work, living their lives as they should. And we've got a, a core group of people who are trying to then... Um, I don't know, identify the issues that have, have caused them to get to that point and then help others not to get to that point. And we've got young people in the group who have never touched drugs. Um, They've maybe had an unhealthy relationship with ship with alcohol, which is changing. So we know that the things that we're doing to help them are working and we want to then create that so we can do that on a a, a larger scale. And then that's where we're at just now. And yeah, I think... um. The health issues relating to... I mean, I was absent for a whole year of my my, my youngest son's life because of the health um, issues I had after coming off methadone. There's no disclosure on um, the effects methadone has on people um, when you're prescribed it. There's no disclosure on the effects it will have later on to your health, your lungs, your immune system, things like that. I almost died in the first two years of my recovery. I spent most of that... Um, fighting for my life and oh my although i was fighting for my life anyway yeah i had um a, i had a dvt after i had my youngest son which was left and the stigma attached to being a drug user you understand when you go to a health professional with any sort of pain or illness they automatically think that you're a drug-seeking or you're, you're trying to gain something from them. So you you do not get this the service that you need. You do not get the compassion or the empathy, especially if you've got a serious health condition. I was left for six months with a blood clot in my leg after having a cesarean and uh, almost died because of that and spent two months in hospital, almost had my leg amputated and I missed the first year of my son's life. I I couldn't walk for a year. I was on crutches for a year after that. And the fact that I'm still here is a a miracle, I would say. So, yeah, um, I don't know. It's um, a surreal, I, I think, that falling into the work that I'm doing just now, I, I say it's happened by accident. Like I never ever planned yeah. to go out and be an activist and plan to go out and support people. It's it's just evolved that way, and and it, it's it's worked really well. We've 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 brought media here. We've got um we've worked with people from all over the world. In fact, doing uh, interviews and stuff like just before I had. To have done this podcast with you, we had a guy come from France to do um, just a small piece of media. So it's... And, and and to say that we've worked for four years with no funding, Mike, none at all. So everything we've achieved in the last four years, we had no funding and we've done it as a community-based activists and we're and on time and knowledge. So yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit surreal considering people know us everywhere. It's... Um, yeah...
0: Oh yeah I think sometimes that's the best know. way to do it. I I think that um Yeah. Well, you know there's a there's a lot there and I and I tell you uh those those uh that are familiar with recovery know that the the format for like telling the story is the way that it was what happened the way it is now. And uh but before we move on to the other uh, you know what happened to you and how you got here uh, and then mm-hmm. in the, the work that you're doing right now, if you don't mind, let me let me let me just kind of follow up on some of the things that you just talked about, uh, because mm-hmm. for the Americans that are that are listening to this podcast, um, very different systems. So there's there's this is a very complex issue uh, for us and for us to understand. And that's why I, I kind of want to peel this apart a little bit, um, because you're related, like you talk about the National Health Service and you talk about mm-hmm. the government um, giving you. Uh, medications and things like that it's, it's a bit different here um, mm-hmm. the relationship that we have with our government and the relationship that we have with our medical service is very different very different here in the United States however there are some similarities but it's not because it's mandated by the government I think it's just uh, a difference of opinion in how addiction works what addiction is and how it should be treated. And that becomes, uh, you know, anybody that's been in the addiction business for any length of time, like, you know, you and I, Sharon, uh, is <clears> – <throat> it can become very controversial, and it's a it's a heavy and sometimes emotional debate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because what you had mentioned – because let, let me make sure I, under, I understand this. So in Scotland or in, in the UK in general, my understanding of what you're saying is that – if you have an addiction, no matter what that addiction is, it could be alcohol, it could be cocaine, it could be heroin. The treatment is methadone. It, that's correct. It, that's how it's treated.
1: Well, yeah, yeah it, it's like alcohol, the uh, that's like the cure all drug
0: in in the, in Europe. Yeah. That's what, it, or at least the UK. I should say the UK.
1: Well, for, right, I would I would say it's for, I would say for for Dundee specifically. I know it happens okay. across Scotland, but I, I, for, as far as as our treatment service in the city that I'm in for the last thirty years, methadone has been the go-to drug for drug addiction, uh, not alcohol, just drug addiction. And okay. um, That's okay. changed slightly over the last four years. There's other options. There's the use of a uh, drug called Suboxone now. As probably mm-hmm. It's probably uh, called something else in America, so that, that people have a different choice. But they're opiate-based, mm. and and that that's for cocaine addiction. Yeah. Um, heroin addi- for for any drug, um. That somebody goes to the drug service, even for volume, they will put you on uh, an opiate-based.
0: Yeah, or Suboxone, as, and then there's another one called uh, Naltrexone, yeah. <clears throat> and those are yeah. those are called those are known as opiate uh, uptake inhibitors. And
1: yes, yeah.
0: um, so for folk, and i I'm actually I, I'll be honest here, I'm actually very familiar with that because uh, mm-hmm. here in the U.S., uh, Naltrexone is used for uh, it, for opiate addiction, but it is also mm-hmm. used for Uh, alcohol addiction and so for the those that are listening that don't don't know what these drugs are um, and and this is a very uh, this is a very poor explanation of how it works but like i said it's known as an opiate uptake inhibitor and in layman's terms what that means is that it does not take away the effects of let's just say let me just take alcohol because it is used in the united states for alcohol it doesn't take away the effect of alcohol it reduces the effect of alcohol Okay, mm-hmm. and it is very commonly prescribed here in the United States, and there are people that swear by it. Uh, I'm not going to say there aren't people that have been helped with that. I'm not. I'm not going to say that, but I am going to. I am going to say that there's a big danger to it, and here's the danger. And and this maybe, and I'm sure this applies over where you are, Sharon. Here's the danger, uh, because it does not eliminate craving and it does not eliminate the effect the problem is let's say and it's very common right you know for people to relapse in early recovery i I, most most people it's actually more common to relapse than not not relapse okay and uh, you know at least in the experience that i've had so let's say that you relapse and you start drinking well, the, the effect isn't completely taken away. So you are getting some effect from the alcohol. And we know if, if you're alcoholic, that once you get that effect, then you want more and more and more. The problem is because you've been taking naltrexone, the effect that you're getting from what you're drinking isn't as much. So you drink more to compensate for that. So you end up drinking mm-hmm. much more than you would have been doing had you not been taking naltrexone in the first place. And that is a very, very dangerous thing for people to do and the same is true if you're if you're taking heroin in or on naltrexone and and that's been very problematic over here and um you know so i i you know my my personal opinion is there's another drug uh known as antabuse and so if you drink on antabuse you just get violently ill it is a very harsh drug to take but uh but it won't kill you um or at least there's very 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 uncommon. Uh, for you to die from it? No, you'll want to die because <laughs> it's a, because uh, it's a very violent reaction if you drink on it. Now, now, ask me how I know that. Ask me how I know that.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't. Because I've experienced it. do you know it. that, Mike? Because <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs> I, I I can tell you. What a shame! The use and abuse here as well for alcohol. Yeah. Like um, um, I'm I'm not too familiar with that. We've got people in the group obviously that yeah. have uh, suffered with alcohol addiction. We're good friends. Scott, he um, he had uh, four, uh stage four liver failure. Yeah. and he's been. Uh, Clean for over a thousand days now. He oh, wow, was, good. He was told he was going to die. Yeah, yeah, so he's doing amazing. But um, like you said, with the Naltrexone, we've been trying to bring that to Scotland, not because we think it's better than any other treatment, it's just because it's another option for for people. Um, I think even with the opiate replacement like uh, methadone and that, like you said, with the, the Naltrexone, if you have to drink more to get the, the effect, this yeah. we witness people mm. on a daily basis using on top of. Of uh, uh, methadone, like it's 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 common culture. Like people are, are use constantly on top of it, um, mm-hmm. the methadone. Uh, I got quite, quite. I got slated quite a lot because of my views on methadone, and I'm not saying it doesn't work. What my issue with it here is, it's not prescribed properly. It's not. Right. Uh, the people that are, are prescribed it aren't looked after the way they should. There's no other intervention except that. So there's no counseling. There's no other support. That is changing slowly, um, and things are starting to to get better. But it's it, it's been quite dire and and people yeah. are just left we've we've got people that have been on methadone prescriptions since they were 15 and they're now going into their 50s um, wow. so you're I'm, I'm not joking yeah so um has being highlighted online we've done articles and documentaries with the, with uh, some specific people who have spoke out about that so it's, yeah. it's real contention for me that this this drug can help people and i know it can get people stable and and, and mm. do its job but it's not done properly and it's, it's it, it's quite sad actually it's,
0: yeah uh, oh and by the way and let me let me clarify with this um and i don't i don't mean mm. i don't mean that to sound like now truck does not help people because like i said yeah. earlier there are people that it helps and and, and yeah, you know, definitely you know it's just but i will tell yeah. just like you had mentioned the things aren't ha- handled properly and and people don't tell like you were talking about methadone and how nobody explained to you like the health consequences you know it's a good thing but then there's health consequences and i know Mm -hmm. in my my experience with naltrexone um the what i the explanation i just gave i gave that explanation through experience like i experienced that yes nobody sat me down Mm -hmm. and said hey by the way let me make you under let me me make sure you understand how natural naltrexone works and and how it doesn't work, and and educate me mm-hmm. on this. I'm I mean, <clears throat> I found these things out the hard way, and and that should not have been. I, I somebody should have explained no. to me. Uh, you know, we, we hand out even here in the U.S. We hand out drugs in in treatment for addiction treatment, and with very little explanation. And I'll be honest with you, I think many of the people that hand the drugs out don't give the explanation because they don't understand themselves how this stuff works. Mm-hmm. And and it's a very, very dangerous thing. Um, Now, Trexone, Suboxone, uh, Methanone, all of these different drugs are effective and abuse all of them. They're very effective, but you need to know what they're used for and what the consequences are if you misuse them. And we just don't do a, a good enough job with that. Not not in my opinion.
1: No. No, I totally agree with you. I to, uh, it, It's been a contention of me for a long time that people do not get the, the right information when they're uh, prescribed any of these medications and the, the implications of long-term use um, and the fact there's no proper intervention in between uh, people being prescribed them and then they're expecting them to come off them. Uh, the way i see it the the services here will um get your addiction under control and get get you um stable by uh by medication and then they will expect you to come off that medication without addressing actually the root cause of the addiction in the right. first place yeah. and and how you got yeah. there so it, it's quite scary and now we've got ch- kids and, and young people that are following suit but with dual addictions to, to many like some of them actually scare me because uh, some of the drugs they're using and, and the age they're using, the bodies are still developing and yeah. no intervention in school, there's no education in school, you, they'll have people go in and talk about drug and the effects of them and what this could do and what that could do but there's there's no real education on and in five years or ten years time if you're using this and you've got these issues that, that fundamentally from your upbringing or through your life you are primed to be addicted to something and giving them the right information on where to go, how to get help like there's nothing like that and I think that things have, have been left for so long and to To understand, we had uh, the AIDS crisis in the eighties in, in Dundee, and also criminality, and I think methadone was brought in back then, without the knowledge and and the understanding of what what that that drug actually does to to maintain people that were unwell with bloodborne viruses, and then also stop criminality and and bring like uh poorer communities to a certain degree of control so that uh police. NHS and that didn't have so much pressure on them and since that time not much has changed and yes in the last 10 years they've tried to address the problems but they have people uh, like in the government trying to address these problems and they're so far removed from the real issues they can't possibly understand the social issues that somebody in a housing scheme working class area has compared to what they do so that there's a disconnect there and I, I think that's fundamentally where the, the problems arise because the, they don't have the knowledge and understanding and they're getting it second hand from people who have got better but they are not going to the root cause of, of, of what's going on and and poverty is a, a huge reason for for why we're suffering the way we are in Scotland I think it's, it's a huge reason why many people end up uh, suffering with mental health issues Issues, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and suicide. So it's um, it, it's quite scary here at times because you you see people trying to address the issues, but nothing happens. We had um, a sixteen-page doc, sixteen thousand-page sorry document written. I think a year ago. Um, probably nearly 18 months ago about the services in Dundee, how to make things better. There was a 12-point plan on how to address them. That's moving forward. And we, we were, I was a member of that commission and we will reconvene in 18 months. But it's not enough. It's, it's not enough. Like, uh, I just I see the effects on a daily basis, I think, because we're on the ground, we're grassroots. Um, we see things a lot different to the people that are making decisions and, and writing policies and, and offering services to people like us and, and the people that we live with. So, yeah, it's um, a sad situation here at times, to be truthful.
0: Yeah, and you 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 mentioned that these policies are being made by people that don't understand what's going on, and I think that's one of the problems mm-hmm. in recovery, and we, we have that here in the, the United States. Uh, and I've seen even my interaction with, with our government here. Uh, we have a, an organization in the government known as the Office of uh, National Drug Control Policy. And and I've met uh-huh. with them, very well-intentioned people, very uh, – I think these are people that really care. They really, really do. I think they mm-hmm. care about what's going on. But the folks that I've dealt with in the organization who are responsible for drug policy here in the United States, um, what's interesting to note of them is none of them are in recovery. And they can be as yes. well-intentioned as intentioned as they want to be, but you know that was one of Bill Wilson's uh, big discoveries – Bill Wilson being one of the mm-hmm. co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, his big discovery to mankind was what works is, in, in his case, one alcoholic working with another alcoholic because mm-hmm. uh, only an alcoholic can understand an alcoholic. And I think that that's true, you know, in mm-hmm. across the board with drugs, that when you're making these policies, if you want the policies to work, then you're going to have to talk to the people like you, like me, that have – live this, have gone through it. And, you know, if if I want to know how to get sober from heroin, um, well, you know, Sharon Webster is probably a good person to talk to because, you know, Sharon Webster has been there, right? Mike has been there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny that I, you know, why I, if I I need uh, some electrical work done in my house, uh, I'm not talking to my dentist about that. You know, if I I need my, my stove fixed in my kitchen, I'm not talking to, uh, a lawyer about that, you know. I'm I'm talking to somebody that has experience in that area, and we don't do enough of that, and we wonder why we we have the these problems. And I really, you know, I know here in America, there's a real big push uh, for drugs that's become because of the opiate crisis. We have a real opiate crisis over here. But I can tell you this: that the government's not bringing people like me and you in to formulate policy, which is what they they should do. And um, and so if you are. Uh, Anybody in the current administration here in in the United States, if you're listening to my voice right now, bring people like us in to help you formulate policy Uh, in in UK. If you're listening to this right now, you should talk to Sharon and and one of her colleagues about what you should do, because that's where you're going to get your answers from to get the help, because that's 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 where it comes from. Um, But furthermore. Um, and I think that you're the the same way in this regard. I, I know this. I I don't depend on my recovery. I don't depend on my government to get me sober, right? Um, no. The, the the at the end of the day, the person that was responsible for me getting sober was me. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to get sober until I wanted to get sober. So, um, and, and you've talked about that a little bit on some of the YouTube videos I've seen, Sharon. So, could you maybe address that a little bit? You know, what what has been your experience with? You know, the motiva- you know, what kind of motivation is there right now in Scotland? And if that motivation is not there, how do we get there? How do we get people sober?
1: So to understand, like, because our, our systems are very different in the States and, and in Scotland, the UK as a whole, we have a, a system... Um, for uh, financial support, housing support NHS so a lot of people's power has been taken away especially people who are unemployed or um, on a low income things like that so when you're suffering from addiction you have to go else, outside yourself to get support it's been told and yes you do probably need that kind of support at the start to get stable to get yourself um, and a, a good thinking so that you can move forward but essentially people's power Taken away, like their own powers taken away, and and they yeah. always look outside themselves for the the resolution to their addiction or, or to get help. And um, at the people because the people that are often the support don't understand that they have to take control of that situation themselves before That's they good will point. get better. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they kind of take away your power. And uh, we've spoken, we've got a few colleagues that work in the NHS and we're, we work quite closely with them. And they're in agreement with a lot of things we say and they're taking on board a lot of what we say. So things are changing that way. And people are now starting to get control of their treatment, how it works and stuff like that. But essentially here, I think that people's power has been taken away for so long Um. and and they live in in the circumstances that mean that that, that they're always looking for support for even the the living and and being a human being so when it comes to recovery and addiction they they still look outside themselves and I think that that is the huge problem and they're waiting for somebody else to give them the answers and waiting for somebody else to say you're going to get better or this is how to get better not realizing the only person that can do that is themselves and for me it wasn't until Um, I went to my key worker and I said, I want to come off methadone. I was on 25 milligrams of methadone and um, was on that for for about three years, a very, very low dose compared to the optimal dose, which is probably about 50 or 60 milligrams. But, um he told me back then it would take me a year to come off this medication and to me I didn't have a year, like I needed to be off it now and I knew that I could do it, it took me two weeks to do it and he had me go back and forth to see him for six months saying I was at high risk of overdose or using again and I I said to him well that's not going to happen because I want to get better and I feel like I've I've took control of what's going on and I I feel okay but for a lot of people they're they're not able to and because they been um, dependent on these social services NHS and that for such a long time and these people have been involved with families for generations the, the thought of taking control of your own life is terrifying for anybody that's living in a housing scheme in, in Scotland and yeah it's, it's quite scary and, and then you've got also got the added issue of a lot of these people have been using alcohol and drugs since they were teenagers adolescents i was very lucky at a point of reference and never my addiction didn't like take hold until i was 27 these people have been taking drugs since they were children so they've never lived as adults so the fear of that as well you've got loads of people walking about in adult bodies but actually their adolescence mind and, and and they don't know how to live as adults so it's um It's complex, uh, and it's actually worrying because we've now got three generations of people that are in them circumstances, and there's only a very few people that I know in the city that I live in that have succeeded in the recovery and maintained it because of these reasons.
0: Yeah, and that's a very, very... Good point. I I heard that said to me once, and, it, and it's funny, you know, Sharon, that we've never met, and you're on the other side of the ocean from me, <laughs> but yet we're speaking the same language. We we really are. Yeah. Um. Albeit your your language <laughs> is <laughs> a really cool sounding Scottish language, and mine's not, oh, but it's <laughs> it's, it's the same well. <laughs> language because <laughs> I've heard I heard a long time ago, in earlier recovery, that when you get um, uh, and see if I can get it put right, that once you get sober you are at the age that you were when you started in your addiction. You yes. know, so if you were yeah. fifteen years old when you started in your addiction and, and you got sober when you were 40, you're actually a 40-year-old man or a woman walking around in a 15-year-old body. You know, I've I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, there's a, a lot of truth to that. And the shame of what you're saying to me, and this is something that I really think needs to change the mentality is you know, and here you are, people having having people from the government telling you, "Hey, look, if you go off of this drug, you're just going to relapse and you're going to go back to using your own drug," which is not the message that needs to be sent. Um, and I and I actually did a a previous podcast on on this subject, and that is this whole idea of harm reduction, right? You know that that we don't we don't eliminate the use in harm reduction, you reduce the use, so it's not harming you as bad. That's kind of like the whole idea. When in reality, sobriety is about, at the end of the day, complete and total abstinence. Meaning that if I'm on heroin, I don't need to be on, me- I don't want to be on methadone the rest of my life. If I'm on alcohol, I don't want to maintain a certain level of alcohol. I want to eliminate it out of my life, and that has to be the goal. Um, uh, because, you know, I I think the opposite, Sharon, is true of, of what the NHS was telling you. And using methadone, even in small doses, actually, I believe, would increase your chances from relapsing because you still have that in your system. I know w- with me, with alcohol, getting alcohol out of my system and keeping it out of my, out of my system for years, for a very long period of time, um, has decreased my cravings and has made my life a thousand percent, not a hundred percent better, a thousand percent better. And I know that if I use Ooh. alcohol then the craving will come back and it, and it will cause me to relapse again. So it's interesting, you know, once again, here you have people that really don't understand what they're talking about, giving you advice on what you should be doing. And it's funny. And the amazing thing about it is you intuitively knew. No, the answer is I need to stop taking this. That that's And you're having to tell the healthcare professional, no, I need to stop this. But they didn't seem to understand that, did they?
1: No, definitely not. For me, for personally, and I'm not speaking for anybody else when I say this, for me personally, looking back on the treatment and, and how I've got to the point that I've had, looking back, treating somebody that's got a heroin addiction with an opiate blows my mind. I say to people, and it's probably a lot of people might not agree with me. If somebody came to me and says they have a, an issue with alcohol, I wouldn't give them more alcohol to stop right, drinking right. alcohol. So, yeah, yeah. so it, 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 it makes no sense to me. And I think that um, there has to be better ways of, of helping people and I understand socially and, and how poverty works. So I understand why these interventions are used, the drugs are used. And I, I know what, that... Um, it probably won't change for, for quite some time until people realise that that fundamentally it's only them that's going to get themselves better. But, yeah, it's uh, the, the, a lot of people in the NHS, are, I'm not, not saying that they always go out. To, if you want to work in health service or, or help get people better, you're, go, you're doing it from a place of good. You're not going out and getting up every day and saying, well, I'm going to make this person's life worse by yeah. giving them this or not giving them the support they need. But I think that it's very short-sighted right now. And I think that, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain in towards, words. Um, I, th- I really think that, like you said, that lived experience and people that know addiction because they're in recovery are the best people to support people. Um, and these people don't have that knowledge. There's a, like... There's a total disconnect there as well. So, on every level, I'm seeing disconnects on and treatment, on policies, on on government. Yeah. It, it filters right down to to the basics. So, it's um, and it's only people like us that that will be able to b- bring this message forward, let people understand their own power, their ability to get better, and and that it is possible to get better. Because I think for a long time in my city, pe- most people. That suffered from addiction, especially drug addiction. Uh, alcohol has always been an issue in Dundee, like a huge issue. But uh, drug addiction, people were were written off, totally written off. That the, there wasn't any um pushed for to get these people off um the treatment they were So they were um on a community-based treatment plan, going to a pharmacy every day, picking up medication. Then you've got people there that are just newly into treatment who are still using drugs. So the risk of of harm for somebody that's on a treatment that's community-based is a daily thing. And it's one of the reasons that I came off methadone because my life had moved on so far and I was doing so much work in the community, but I was still... Um, being subjected to people that were still using drugs, which triggered me on a daily basis, and it, it's very hard to move away from that because there is no other option. That's the way it works. It's um, it's like running around on a hamster wheel, Mike. Oh, <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Oh yeah. No, I, I absolutely <laughs> I know, can yes. can relate to that. And um, you know, you you talk about the causes in the in the conditions, right? So the cause and condition. Mm-hmm. So the condition is the physiological addiction that that we have to the substance, right? And and there's a lot of mm-hmm. genetic predisposition to um, mm-hmm. to show that that's there. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of research that's out there that shows that people of uh, Northern European descent have a higher predisposition towards addiction that's there's there's just a lot of research that's out there on it so that's so that's why i keep printing the science side of this because that that helped me when i understood that my body was genetically wired to predispose me towards addiction that helped me understand that this wasn't just me being a bad person being a weak person because I wasn't i mean my my willpower and and Sharon from what i've seen in you your willpower is enormous but it's not about willpower mm-hmm. your body is wired to be predisposed towards addiction and when you know that mm-hmm. that when you know that and you understand that you can take measures that will help you in in your recovery like for example i have allergies right you know when when things in the spring here start to bloom, the flowers and the grass and everything starts to grow. Um, I have a severe um, adi- uh, a reaction to that. I start sneezing and coughing, and and I have to take medications to to control that. Right now, um, imagine if somebody were to come up to me and say, "Hey, Mike, um, you know what? You know you know when you sneeze and you cough like that in the spring. I, I know what the problem is. I, I know what the problem is. Um, you're not a good father." If you were a better father, that wouldn't happen. You know, if you went to church more often, that wouldn't happen. If you were a better employee, you know, if you loved your wife more, that wouldn't happen to you, right? And, and I would look at you and say, what? Are you crazy? What does that have to do with me sneezing due to these allergies that I have? Well, if you think about it, that's exactly what we do in recovery. We say, you're having this reaction to these drugs. You're hooked on this drug. You know what your problem is? You don't love your wife enough. You're not a good employee. Uh, you're not a good father. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't work out enough. Um, and you and you're thinking anybody that, that's had an addiction knows that has nothing to do with it. Of course, I love my wife. Of course, I love my children. I try to be a good employee. I all these different things. And it and there was always a disconnect. It was like I I I do do those things. I still go to church, but yet but you're telling me that I don't do enough of that, and now I'm drinking. And it's because it has nothing – one has nothing to do with the other. Um, it is – you know, I don't tell somebody that has an allergy to peanuts or an allergy to shellfish that they need to work out more. No, what you do is you say your body is wired that when this stuff starts to grow over here, when things start to bloom, you your body genetically – is wired to not to have an adverse reaction to that. Well the same is that we have to alcohol and drugs. It my body has a different reaction than most people has. And so what's the solution to that is to not use that substance. If I was allergic to peanuts, I just would not eat peanuts. If I have diabetes, there's mm-hmm. certain things that I have to do. If I have cancer, there's certain things I have to do. And the funny thing is we don't question that. If the doctor tells me not to do something because I'll have a reaction, I don't question it. But for some reason, when we get into addiction, when we give people the solution, they say, yeah, not so much. We have a better answer. Maybe this will work. And and that may be the problem because, you know, th- that's the condition. That's the, the, bod- the body's reaction. Um, but then the cause, meaning... But why do we try to do these things to our, do we, or do we do these things to, that are des- destructive to us? We do that because of the unhappiness, whether it's unemployment, you talk about the severe poverty and, uh, just the conditions and that just puts people in depression it puts people in a point where they don't have hope and in that wanting to escape at the end of the day addiction is about escapism escapism in isolation and wanting to get away remove yourself from the situation that you're in and um, you know, that's, that's, that's what has to be addressed is to give people hope that there is a better way um, that you're not going to have hope. You're not going to succeed if you engage in drug addiction or alcoholism or a combination of both. You know, a lot of people um, actually have both drugs um, because you'll never, you're just going to destroy yourself. You will never escape from where you are by doing this. And really the better way is to not use these drugs and, 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 Maybe that message just isn't out there enough that, hey, you know, you don't have to be a third generation addict. There is a better way you can break that cycle. Um, Do you agree with that, Sharon?
1: No, I totally agree with that. I mean, like I said earlier on, our focus is now turned to the, the the young people who are affected. Like you say, generational. Like you're talking, we said three generations. In fact, we're going into four generations mm-hmm. now. And these 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 young people know they don't know any different. They they they're already conditioned, like you say, because of um. Their makeup and, and uh, who they are and the to be an addict and then you you've got the the social and the 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 their peers and, and the added pressure of that and but they they know no different like this is how they've lived they've got uncles grandparents everybody they've been drug users, drug sellers criminals and there, there, there is no hope in communities like mine and and th- th- this is I think the the whole reason of why we've changed what we're doing because we, we need to now address that issue and, and show young people like, you can be a single mother of four children whose partner committed suicide with no money and get off your arse sorry, excuse me for, for saying that word, but getting, <laughs> o- getting off your arse get, off your bum and, and, and getting up and, and you can make things change people are resided to the fact even without the added pressure of addiction and that socially that one person can't change anything and that they're resided to how things are right now is how they're always going to be because you can't change it you can't do anything to change it and, and obviously that's where the activism comes in but the, the whole aspect of when you're living in uh, uh, an area where um, unemployment is high uh, drug addiction, mental health um, suicide, teenage pregnancy, all these added things outside what you are all already experienced personally, there is no hope and, and you have to, we, we have to be able to show people that there is hope and the only way you can do that is make yourself visible, like the things you're doing um, with the work and the stuff that you've done with the agency and stuff like our activism and the only way we can do that is make ourselves visible on social media, through media Through being in our community, talking to people and showing. Young people, especially, that there is hope. Like, you you don't have to resign yourself to the fact that this is going to be your life and this is how it's going to turn out. You don't have to be the fifth generation in your family who suffers from addiction. Like, you can address these issues. You can go back to the fundamentals in your family and break the cycle. And I, I think that the hope of breaking the cycle that these people are in just now, especially um, where I live, the hope is gone. The hope is gone, and, and people don't really believe. There is any hope that, that, like, say that your grandfather was, um, I don't know, a mechanic, then your dad was a mechanic, and your uncle was a mechanic, and you're a young man in that family, so you'd be a mechanic. That's, that's the job you'd probably take. But it's the same with addiction. I think people see their grandparents, their mothers, and it's a way of life now. It's, it's the hope is gone. And, yeah, I don't know. I think that, for me essentially and and i worry most about my children i can see the effects that my addiction had on them personally and i know that they are not unique they are just part of a a bigger picture and it scares me that two or three more generations will will grow up thinking that there is no hope that this is all that you you can do like um young men in our community are conditioned to think that it a way of life to sell drugs and and a way of making money and and that is what happens young women are exploited sexually because of the the drug and crime and and that's what happens and people have accepted it we've got parents that are, are accepting the fact that what they're doing they're allowing their kids to do there's no integrity morality everything's gone and the hope is not there like you say there is no no hope just now And it's it's rather scary for me uh, to think that this can continue and and the cycle won't be broken because of the conditions that people are putting up with and the fact that their power is sort of taken away. Like, essentially, through education and lack of education and lack of intervention, like, we know that the people that we support have suffered immense traumas, children. The services that are available have been um connected to these families for a very long time and they've had the ability to intervene and intervene in the right way and because that's not happened they're now going to be young people and young adults that are not going to be productive they're not going to uh, contribute to the community in a positive way and they're going to end up either in prison dead or, or or i don't know it's um quite scary i suppose because we're grassroots we see these things first hand and it's probably hard for somebody that doesn't experience that to understand the implications for that but it means that a whole community is broken and there is no community and people are just trying to survive on the basics that's it they're just they're not not even living they're just existing and it's uh, it scares me actually
0: yeah, they're not living. I love that line right there. They're 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 not living. They're just existing, and mm-hmm. you know, Sharon. And I, I tell you what, we'll kind of wrap up for for today on that note. And because I I hope that you mm-hmm. can come join us again to continue the conversation. Can you do that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to do that
0: because I I really think that your message is very very powerful and it's something that needs to get mm-hmm. out to the the community. It's it's very important and. People like yourself are the folks that people can look to to see that hope. We call it, you know, they call it the experience, strength, and hope. And there's no better example from, you know, for that for the community than to see someone that came from that and are now living a successful life and showing that you can be a contributing member of society. And really, the big secret to recovery is passing the message along to other people and And helping the next person, doing that next right thing as as they say. And that's exactly what you are doing. And um, I, I'll just let me just finish wrap up with this, because one of the reasons why I do what I do, and I know you do what you do, Sharon, is this that I had been trained early on to believe that my recovery needed to be a secret, that, you know, we don't talk about recovery outside of recovery circles. And, and it wasn't until I came across a, a documentary, actually, It's a, and I'll do a little plug for it. It's called Anonymous People. It's a video that was put out by a group called Faces and Voices of Recovery. It's called Anonymous People.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the premise, uh, have you seen that, Sharon, Anonymous People?
1: Um, I've not seen Anonymous People, but we're involved with Faces and Voices of Recovery um, in, uh, in Dundee. like There's a... The, the charity exists here as well, and we have done work at Scottish Parliament with them, and yeah. we create we created the drug related death um, page and and helped them bring awareness to that. So I know who they yeah. are, and um I know the CEO very well. So very, yeah. it's a very
0: good group, and um I saw yes. I, I saw one of uh, and it was and it was a weird thing. Um, and the the weird thing about it was I was faced with I was teaching a course. On addiction, but I had been trained to not talk about my own, and um, I had some people in the class call me out because they were they were saying, "Hey, look, um, you're in recovery, aren't you?" And and I I told them yes. This was in private. They, they pulled me aside, and they said, "Well, you know, the problem here is." you' You're talking about this, and it's obvious to us that you're you're passionate about this. You didn't just read about this. You're in it, but you're not being honest with us about it. And it wasn't that I was trying to lie to these people. I actually believed that I was doing what I was told to do. And I had uh, uh, that that day, I, I I went, I was driving home and i I talked to some people in the program that were in recovery, and they said, well, you know, Mike, we don't we don't talk about recovery outside of recovery circles." And, uh, you know, too bad, but we just don't do that. And then I went home and I talked to my wife about it. And she understands recovery and, and she didn't have any answers. I mean, we, we had a long discussion about it. And that night, and the, the weird thing about this is, and this is why I don't really believe in coincidences anymore. That night, I was getting ready to go to bed and I'm flipping through the television. And there's, you know, hundreds of channels, but there's nothing on, on television worthwhile. And I just for one split second stopped on a channel. And something caught my eye, and it was this documentary called Anonymous People. And I ended up watching it. And uh, the, the sort of the theme of the documentary was, that people you know first of all addiction destroys communities and it's the number one killer i don't i don't care what people say about all of these other diseases all these other things going on uh take even covid for example right now people are talking about the death rate the fact is more people will die from addiction this year than will die from from covid but yet we don't we don't shut down the whole country Mm -hmm. as a result of it but anyway uh they they said that this is a a real problem but the problem that we face is that the people that got well Are trained to not talk about it and and Mm -hmm. how how do people expect to get well and how do we expect to change the stigma unless people that are well-known uh people that are respected in the community people that you know because those people are out there it's not just poverty it's not just the homeless it's not it's not what we think stereotypically um, that it is the fact is everybody Mm -hmm. suffers from addiction I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your sexual preference is. It, it doesn't matter. Everybody's affected by addiction. But their premise was, if nobody talks about it, then how do people know to get well? And they said, we need an army of people to get out and preach that word. And so my wife looked at me and she goes, well, there's your answer right there. And so the next day I went in and I, and that was the first time the very first time outside of recovery circles that I told my story and I've been doing it ever since. And, and But that's what you're doing, Sharon, is you're getting that message out and giving the people uh, of Scotland the example, setting that example to lead the way on you can get better. If I can do it, you can do it. But here's how I did it. And so with that, Sharon, I want to thank you for joining, joining us today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: No, I appreciate it. No, it's been a good experience. Thank you for um, uh, letting me speak to you, and hopefully we can speak again soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. And as I always like to say, I don't represent any group. I don't represent anyone other than myself. And my only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it has helped me and maybe it will help you too. If I or Sharon have said something that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and help help others as well. That's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way, and and we hope to impart hope to impart that knowledge we have gained so others can benefit as well. And uh, so with that, visit our Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com, and let me know how I'm doing, and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing, and I'd love to hear from you, and take care, and we will see you next time.